All righty. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. So uh, welcome and thank you for uh, attending our uh, luncheon today. And we want to thank Dr. Baker for being with us and thank the Kern Family Foundation for their generous support so that we can have these forums on faith, work, and economics. And uh, Dr. Baker, as we introduced him earlier, is a professor at Union University and is editor of several journals, <clears throat> author of three books and a number of different essays. I think uh, one of the interesting things about your uh, resume is you've got four degrees, I think a bachelor's in economics and, uh, and political, and science, political yeah. science, then a master's in public administration, a yeah. JD. Uh, law the degree. MPA was my safe job. That was the okay. that, that was the make mom and dad happy one right there. <laughs> so you could make yeah. some money. That's exactly. Right. That's yeah. right. And it's kind of the outlier. And then right. and finally PhD in uh, what is the degree called at Baylor? Politics. Religion, politics, and society. Religion, yeah. politics, and society. So how did you get interested in politics and public life, and in uh, being a distinctively Christian voice within politics and public <clears throat> life? Yeah. Um, well, I was always interested in politics. I, you know, I, I guess I must have gotten that from my parents because my dad was a confirmed Goldwaterite uh, during, the, during the 1960s. Uh, and um, I can remember sitting on the couch with my mother in 1976 watching the Ford Carter okay. election returns yeah. come in. So it must have been in the, in the air. Um, but the, uh, I think that the big thing that happened was um, part of it is cable television. And uh, some of you may remember the old show Crossfire. Uh, and Crossfire, back in those days, had typically Pat Buchanan mm -hmm. taking on Michael Kinsley. That's right. And uh, it was epic combat every night. It was much, it was much better than anything that's on right now. And, um, <clears throat> and basically, um, a friend had gotten me interested in it. And we were so excited about it that we called each other at the beginning. We called each other on the commercial break, and then we called each other when it was over, you know, to discuss everything that had happened, right? Yeah. And uh, so I think that, that's, that that kind of had me with the idea that I wanted to, that I wanted to know more and be part of that world. Um, and then the other thing about it is, is that uh, I went to Florida State, and uh, I always tell people that I'm, I think I'm one of the few people who went to Florida State to become a Christian. Uh, the, <clears throat> I went to Florida State, you know, fully pagan. Um, and I had the dorm to match. Uh, and um, I think that in those first few months of just totally dissolute living in the dorms and, uh, and seeing what life was like, um, having some epic bad experiences, I, I made a deal uh, one, one day. I, just, I spent the whole day just crawling around the men's bathroom, which is a terrible place to be. And, um, you know, totally hung over and I thought I was going to die from alcohol poisoning. And I told God that if I lived, I would attend a religious meeting of some kind. <laughs> right. And, um, <clears throat> and so I had a roommate who was going to InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And so I thought I'm just going to go to that. And, um, and I remember going to that first meeting. Uh, everybody sat in the front of the room except for me. I sat about six or seven rows back of everybody. And they reached out to me, you know, come, come forward, sit with us. No, no, you know, I'm kind of, I was fulfilling an obligation, right? I told God <laughs> I would go to the meeting. And, um, you know, something happened. I mean, that, somehow uh, the Lord got hold of me and 
even though I didn't, I didn't just immediately convert or anything like that, I started coming back. And um, in particular, I was listening to the kinds of things the people would say. Uh, they talked about Jesus. And to me, in my secular self, talking about Jesus was embarrassing. You know, it's like, I mean, even to say the word Jesus to me just felt like ripping your pants. I mean, it's very, you know... You know, just bad taste. Only a very, very religious person would talk about Jesus, you know? And, um, but I, so I, I hung around with these people and I found that I admired them. You know, I really, I really liked them as people and I, and I admired their character. And so the first stage of it was, was that, um, if, have you ever seen Dances with Wolves, the, the Kevin Costner film? Okay, well, uh, he hangs out with the Indians and he kind of wants to be an Indian, right? You know, so, at first, it was just emulation. I wanted to be like them, right? Uh, but then, uh, I remember I tried to witness to this young lady. It would be a young lady, right, that I tried to witness to. And um, I was horrible at it, absolutely horrible. Uh, she told me that her dad was a Buddhist, and I just had nothing. You know, absolutely nothing to say to that. And, um, and I told this other young woman, who is now my wife, uh, I told her about what happened, and she said, you know, very kindly, she said, did you ever think about reading any books about the Christian faith? You know, did you ever, <laughs> did you ever think about trying to learn, you know? Uh, <clears throat> and I.V. always had a book table, right? And um, so I remember in particular a book by uh, Peter Kreeft, or Peter mm -hmm. Kreeft, however you pronounce that. Who knows? Called, be <laughs> called Between, Between Heaven and Hell. Yeah. And, uh, and it's a discussion, you know, apparently C.S. Lewis, Aldous Huxley, and John F. Kennedy died within 24 hours of each other. And the book is, a, is, is them having a discussion, right? And, um, and I found myself intellectually convinced by some of the arguments there. I, I found, not long after that, that I actually thought that the resurrection of Christ had happened, right? And mm -hmm. so, that to me, that's when I really became a Christian, right? There was the... There was the social becoming a Christian, but then there was the really, like I'm really, I actually think this is based on something that, that really happened. And, and then once, once that happened, um, somewhere along the line, I saw Francis Schaeffer's How Should We Then Live? Right. And, um, <clears throat> you know, it, it is fashionable for a lot of Christian professors to, to poke fun at Schaeffer or to, yeah. to talk about things he was wrong about, and he's wrong about some things, but... He did something amazing for me. I mean, what, what Schaefer showed me, kind of, you know, marching around those museums in Europe and standing in front of paintings and talking about them and playing John Cage's music, he showed me that the Christian faith was so much bigger than what was in, like, the Christian bookstore, right? There's just a vast, you know, kind of horizon, right? And that touches everything. It's this huge, huge thing. And so then I started to think that, that, that if I'm interested in politics and economics, then I, I want to I want to bring that part of my world together with my Christian world, right? And so I would say that's what really set me off on my entire kind of life task is, is that. That's a good story. So w when you were first envisioning, you know, Christianity, politics, and public life, did you envision being a politician, professor of political science, think tank guy? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that way back in the very beginning, I probably saw myself working on Capitol Hill or something okay. like that. Um, and I actually did, I actually went quite a ways toward doing that. Uh, in law school, I worked for the Rutherford Institute, which at that time was kind of a major religious liberty organization. And, uh, 
and then for prison fellowship um, back in the days when Chuck Colson was still alive. And, uh, you know, one of my proud moments is I got to write some commercials for Chuck, you know, that he recorded, and I was, you know, super proud pupil at that time. Um, so I was kind of moving that direction, and, uh, and Prison Fellowship offered me a chance to come work with them in Virginia after school. And it's just one of those weird things, you know, every now and then in life, um, you feel like God actually tells you to do or not to do something. And I felt like God told me, do not go to Washington, D.C. Um, and so kind of painfully, I, I, I chose not to do it and um, uh, ended up going to Atlanta and working for uh, a group called Georgia Family Council, uh, which was connected to Focus on the Family. And um, my career unfolded from there. And so you've taught at Houston Baptist <coughs> and you yes. taught at Union. And yes. then you did something... Uh, not surprising for those of us who know you, but surprising for most folks, you had a you have a great job as a professor, and you decided to run for political office. Yes. Why in the world? Yes. Would you do that? Uh, <clears throat> yeah, that was crazy. Um, the <clears throat> I I um you know I referred to my time with Prison Fellowship and Rutherford Institute um, during those days. This was the late '90s. We were working on religious liberty legislation. We were working on the Religious Liberty Protection Act. Uh, which followed RIFRA, which had been partly struck down by the Supreme Court. And um, the original RIFRA, Religious Freedom Restoration Act, that law had passed Congress almost unanimously, House and Senate, Democrats and Republicans alike. And so when we were pushing for the Religious Liberty Protection Act, at the beginning, it looked like we were going to have a similar kind of coalition. Uh, but then there was major, major opposition from a group called the Human Rights Campaign which is, uh, you know, kind of the premier gay rights uh, organization. And I suddenly realized that, that they see their interests as being wholly at odds with, with a strong sense of religious liberty, right? Um, and so at that time I realized that, that religious liberty would be in serious danger. And so, you know, the whole time we were leading up to Obergfell, which is the gay marriage decision, you know, everybody was, was upset, you know, well, gay marriage, what is gay marriage going to do? But I was, I was constantly, I wasn't worried about that. I was worried about the thing after that, which is I was worried about what is the impact of this going to be on religious liberty, right? And I was, I was waiting for that. You know, 10 years I was waiting for that. I knew it was going to happen. Mm -hmm. And uh, so when it finally did, um, my congressman surprisingly stepped down. And uh, I felt like uh, God wanted me to run for, run for Congress. And um, it's hard because I'm a political science professor and I'm supposed to understand all the worldly things about running for office, which I do, right? I understand that it's all about the money, uh, that you probably shouldn't run if you don't have three quarters of a million dollars, you know, minimum, um, that, uh, that religious liberty is not exactly a meat and potato issues that most voters care about. I mean, I knew all that. But I felt like God was telling me to run and to run on religious liberty. And I knew I very likely would not win and would probably look like a holy fool. Um, but I did it because I felt like that's what, that's what I thought God was asking me to do. Um, and, in, you know, in retrospect, I think, I think it was good. I did lose as expected, mm -hmm. right? Um, it's funny. It shows you how much money determines things. There was a group of 13 people running for this seat. And... Um, all the people who had more money than me beat me, and I beat everybody who had less money than me. So, so 
Wow. So that shows yeah, you yeah, that shows yeah. you a little something about yeah. how that how that works. Um, <clears throat> but in any case, I, I had the opportunity to travel around the district telling people over and over again about the importance of religious liberty. And the guy who won the race heard me talking about it all summer long. So right. hopefully hopefully I got something across to him. So let's let's hone in on religious liberty for a minute. I want yeah. to ask uh, several questions. I want to ask you to give an argument for it okay. uh, uh, as a sort of a model to us that if we have two or three minutes, what do we say yeah. uh, to undergird it? Then I want to ask what uh, will happen if and when our religious liberty is curtailed. So what are the negative consequences? And yeah. that may be part of your first answer. Then after that, I want to talk about the temptations to curtail it that come from the left and the right. Yes. Uh, some obvious ones from the left, but then, you know, on the right, you know, we've got folks who are asking how far does religious liberty extend to, to Muslims, Yes. for example. Yes. Why don't I start with that part just real quick? Because that's one thing okay. I observed on the campaign trail. I mean, this is West Tennessee that we're talking about, where I was running, right? Uh, and, and part of my logic is these are people who will be very interested in religious liberty, and that was true. But, but that having been said, um, I would very regularly get people say, I'm totally with you on religious liberty, but what about the Muslims, right? And I mean, and I told them, I said that, you know, that if, we, if we embrace this concept of religious liberty, then we also will tolerate the Muslims to build their mosques and to, you know, to live their to live their lives. Um, you know, some people think that Gary Johnson recently said religious liberty is a black hole, meaning that, that he thinks it just authorizes any unlawful activity. But that's not really the case. If you, if you look back to the founding fathers and their, their understanding of religious liberty, the idea is, is that people are entitled to the free exercise of their religion as long as they don't essentially, you know, threaten the peace and safety of the community. So, you know, yeah. cutting people's heads, that's out. Sacrificing virgins, that's out, right? But I mean, you know, <laughs> throwing the girls in volcanoes, whatever. Uh, but <laughs> within the bounds of kind of what we, what we understand is the normal, normal life of, of religious people, that, that should be accommodated. Now, why, why should we respect religious liberty? <clears throat> well, uh, first of all, if we, if we embrace religious liberty, we are implicitly saying that the government does not own us, right? That's you know, right. We're, we're kind of taking right. that, uh, that Caesar's coin view of things. Yes, God has given Caesar some things to do, right? God has given Caesar a certain mandate, but it's not everything, right? I mean, some things belong to Caesar. Some things are God's and jealously, jealously guarded as such. And when you embrace religious liberty, you're saying, hey, Caesar, you don't get it all, right? Sometimes I've got to obey the higher law. Uh, and it's better if it's better if you acknowledge that. And you know, look, human beings, uh, integrity means that that I live according to my beliefs. And so, if the government is going to interfere unnecessarily with you doing that, then it is it is truly oppressing you, right? It is oppressing your conscience. It is trying to force you to live uh, in accordance with a code that you do not hold. And that's there's something terrible about that, right? Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> the other side of it is is um, John Courtney Murray, great, uh, great kind of Catholic uh, theologian, he did a lot of work in religious liberty uh, back when it wasn't popular yeah, for Catholics right. to do so. Yeah. Um, and uh, he said you need to look at the religion clauses of the First Amendment as, as articles of peace, right? That, that these are clauses which if we learn to respect them, 
then we can live in harmony with each other, right? We don't have to stamp on each other's beliefs and force each other to conform uh, in ways that are unnecessary. And in that way, it's easier for us to live together. And in a pluralistic society, that's even more important. So, you know, there seems to be an authoritarian impulse. Yes. You know, yes. in uh, broader in Europe <coughs> and in the United States. And it comes from the left and from the right. Yep. Can you talk about that a little bit? And, uh, yeah, and, well, I, I think this comes from just the roots of <clears throat> of what it means to to be in society together. I mean, I think that if we were to, you know, if we could kind of go back and look at human history uh, and, you know, maybe the most ambitious estimates of what we have in terms of like a written history that anybody could look at, maybe 6,000 years, something like that. The Chinese would say That's that, right? right? That's 6,000 years. Uh, and... Um, if you could look back at most of that, you would see the political power and the religious power together, right? Um, the reason for that is fairly obvious, right? If, you are, if you're the political authority, you don't really want this religious authority saying, you know, we think something different, right? You want it under your, under your control, right? And uh, <clears throat> if you look at the, the great social contract thinkers after the Reformation, um, Hobbes, Hobbes with his Leviathan, the Leviathan must control religion, right? We can't tolerate, you know, without, without, without Leviathan controlling religion, there'll be no end to the dis disputes. Um, Rousseau, Rousseau has this problem of the two masters, right? There's always, there's always the government and then Christ, and Christ is contradicting the government, and we can't tolerate this, and so we need to create a civil religion that everybody can believe in, and, you know, it's very simple, it's, you know... Uh, God favors the good, God punishes the bad, and that's kind of the end of it, right? And, um, and nobody is allowed to say anybody else is going to hell. If you say that, we're going to literally throw you out of the, out of the community, right? So the, the natural impulse, the natural bend of history has been for governments to control these sorts of things. And we're getting to the point where they kind of want to control it again. Yeah, yeah. yeah so you know, authoritarian, <coughs> the authoritarian impulse and some uh, you know, restrictions of religious liberty have been one set of issues in this wonderful election cycle, 2016, <laughs> that's been encouraging and unifying and uplifting. Right. Um, what are some other, let's, uh, I want you to be a sort of a, a physician right now for right. our nation, <coughs> diagnosing the ills that plague us, and then writing a prescription. Could you sort of identify yeah. two or three or four uh, things well, that are problems? Yeah, well, yeah. Uh, you know, the big thing... Um, it's funny because uh, right now I've been we're doing Plato with students, and one of the things that Plato is very concerned about in his uh, Republic is faction, right? The problem of faction, and so he he has all yeah. kinds of ideas for how he's going to control faction. <clears throat> and you think about that; that's like what three or four hundred BC uh, or BCE, as the current yeah. day would have it, right? Um, before Christian era, right? Yeah, that's yeah. right. Uh, the, uh, <clears throat> so anyway. Uh, <clears throat> So we have, we have him going back that far. And then you look to uh, probably Hamilton and the Federalist Papers uh, in the late 18th century, still talking about faction, yep. right, and how to control yep. the problem of faction. And the, um, the American answer to that is, is very multifaceted, right? We have uh, the neat thing about our government is, at least by its original design, is that uh, everybody has always been battling over who has the power, who has the power, who has the power. Uh, the king, the people, the nobles, who has it? And yeah. the U.S. government uh, 
in its founding kind of asked a little bit of a different question, which is how much power, right? Not just who has the power, how mm -hmm. much power, right? So one answer to the problem of faction is, is, that, is that unlimited power is not available to factions, right? right? Another is, is that we take these factions and we divide things up, right? You know, we've got the, we got the House, we got the Senate, we got the court, we got the president. And not only that, we've got the, the divide between the states and the federal government. The states are broken up into the cities and the towns and the counties, you know. And, so, and if we treat those distinctions as real, then they will constantly be countering each other, mm. right? And that out of that process of, of constantly uh, having some friction, the only things that they will do will be the things that can be largely agreed upon, right? right? So that's, okay. that's yeah. one answer, okay. right? And can I follow up on yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. So and what are some ways in which uh, some of these divisions have sort of tried to usurp territory that's not theirs? Yeah, well, the, um, I mean, the biggest one is just that the, the, at least in the American context, yep. uh, the federal government has accrued power to itself at a tremendous rate uh, throughout throughout the history of the republic, really, but mostly you know post Civil War. Um, it's interesting because uh, when you look at the religious liberty cases, they're almost all like since the forties or fifties, right? You right, know? right. <laughs> it's you know as as government expands its power, you begin to have right. more of these clashes. And that's part of what's going on right now is that we are, uh, you remember how I talked about that if, that if your society lacks virtue, you'll have more and more regulations, more and more laws. Um, that's what we're experiencing right now, tremendous mm. growth of the administrative and regulatory state. And so what's the fix for that? <laughs> Teach people to love limited government. You, yeah, know, it's, yeah. you know, I mean, it's, it's, but it's hard because uh, this one thing it's, it's difficult to teach young people is because um, there is something in us that, that wants to pursue the good society, right. right? Right. And so when you pursue the good society, that means for everybody, right? You know, that we want to kind of say, these are the good things. We're striving for this together. Um, but the problem is, is that if you buy into that, then you also have to embrace a lot of power. So what's your starting point for your students? Mediating institutions or, I mean, what, how do you... Yeah, sort of I, I think that um, I think that that what is good. I, I think that the answer to the culture wars is is decentralization yeah. and federalism, right? Yeah. Because uh, I think it's great if we have, you know, look, Massachusetts is very different from Louisiana, right? You know, and that and if we allow a lot of these different approaches to kind of to kind of play out, mm -hmm. then we can see, you know, hey, what's working, yeah. right? Where are people moving? Right, you know, mm -hmm. uh, to me that's a better way than to kind of say, well, we're gonna we're gonna put all the dice in one one roll and say this is what we're all doing, yep. right? Yep. Okay, so I interrupted you. I'm gonna let you finish being the the physician diagnosing our nation. Okay. And you, we started with uh, one was faction, how to cure yep, faction. Faction. <clears throat> the other is is that um, I think that we're developing some fairly scary kind of almost tribal instincts. Mm. Um, Tom Wolf, uh, who uh, uh, probably his probably his biggest book was the one they made into a terrible Tom Hanks movie. Uh, so Man in Full Armor. Man in Full the, came no, after no. that. Dead yeah, gummit. Come on. Bonfire of the Vanities. Yes, yeah. Bonfire of the Vanities. Uh, that was a big book, but he wrote a lot of nonfiction and and uh, great stuff. Don't let the movie wreck your appetite for Wolf. Um, <clears throat> but his latest novel is called Back to Blood. 
And uh, his theory and that kind of his thesis in the novel is, is that if we, if we lose hold of kind of these, these uh, common values that we have, uh, then we will revert mm -hmm. to sort of a prior, sort of a tribal identity, right? Right. Uh, and, and, you know, his fear is that's what's happening, and I kind of worry about that as well. Okay. Yeah. How about uh, policy issues? Uh, you know, and let's, let's, uh, let's let our parameters be not conservative politics as a whole, but evangelical, in th things of central evangelical concern. Religious liberty. Yeah. Uh, Pro-life. Yep. Uh, traditional view of uh, marriage. Gender. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, I, th I think that religious liberty is... Uh, terribly important. Mm -hmm. um, you can't put it in front of pro-life just because life is so fundamental, right? Right. Um, but, but I just think that the damage done to persons, I, to me, I just think about it. Uh, I think about the situation where a person has their small business, they really have no power, you know, or anything like that, um, and uh, they have lots of competitors, and you tell that person that, that you want them to make a wedding cake or do the flowers or whatever for, for a gay wedding, and, uh, and their response is, you know, look, I've, I've gladly served you all these years, and um, there's just this one thing I, I feel like I can't do. Uh, please respect me and, and go elsewhere. And uh, to have a situation where the secular government basically puts its hand on the back of that person's neck yep. and says... If you want to have a bakery in this town, you're going to yeah. do this, right? You know, I mean, right. to, to me, that's yeah. dangerous. It's it is. It's terrible. Yeah, and um, so, so I think we have to continue fighting that fight, <clears throat> and in particular, we have to fight it for about the next five to ten years. I, I think that, I think that 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 the passions are high after after the victory in, in mm -hmm. Oberg fell, yeah. and so you see that they're trying to move the ball down the field very rapidly after that, right? So you get the transgender bathrooms and stuff like that, and uh, we have to just kind of ride out this stormy period, and part of how we do that is by very rigorously yeah. insisting on religious liberty and, you know, no, this really is a big deal. Uh, yeah, you know, the, the big fight, I, I guess, <coughs> is... <clears throat> Whether or not the uh, the government can extend its its vision uh, for equality into the private sector, the family, yeah, yeah. Uh, businesses, sure. churches, That's you right. name it. So, what about churches and yeah. Christian institutions of higher education? What are the religious liberty fronts? Well, for I, us? you know, I want to say that the churches are safe. Um, when you think about the the administration's decision to use the language of freedom of worship. Mm -hmm as opposed to the more vigorous free exercise, right. uh, it seems like they might at least be, they might at least have high respect for what goes on within the four walls of the church. But, um, but you know, churches are not contained to that, right? I mean, churches do a lot more than just have the service on That's Sunday. Right. So um, that probably will continue to be a problem. Uh, you know, basically the deal will be you either want to be out and heavily involved in the community or you'll be your own highly limited right. sort of an activity, right? Um, the possible consequences for Christian higher education are massive, absolutely massive. Um, <clears throat> you think about the HHS mandate, which required that employers buy um, contraceptives and, and abortifacients. Uh, that was a big deal, and that was not a presidential executive order. That was just a plain old regulation issued by the Department of Health and Human Services. 
Um, I really believe that, that it would not be difficult for the Federal Department of Education to simply issue a regulation um, that says that any, uh, any college or university that holds a particular view on gay marriage cannot receive uh, any federal loans for yep. students, any Pell Grants, any veterans benefits, you know, any of that, right? Uh, and I mean, with that, that would immediately probably wipe out probably 90% of what we know as Christian higher education. Um, so, so, you know, here's the rub. So what we're saying is, I think, we're agreeing yeah, here that yeah. it, it's okay to have confessional institutions, churches that have yes. confessions, yep. and that, that these folks should be able to undergird their businesses and other things in the private sectors with a reasonable amount of that confession. Yep. And, uh, and, and so the... Well, and, and let me say, yeah. when we're talking about the, the individual businesses, one of the things that I think is a huge misconception, and I think this extends to Gary Johnson, is... Yep. The idea that what we're asking for is basically gay straight apartheid, okay, which is not the case. That's right. em, that is emphatically That's not right. the case, right? There's a reason why all these cases have been like wedding businesses, right? You, you have yeah. people who they specifically they have the very narrow objection, very specific, very narrow, very limited. I don't want to do a gay wedding, and that's because the wedding has a certain religious significance to me for me, right. and that's the reason why I don't want to participate. Uh, that's part of what makes it so galling is that the right. the request for accommodation is so limited, yep. and and they act as though no, you're trying to do kind of gay Jim Crow on us or something. You know, yeah. it's just, uh, it's wrong. So we've got to wrap up in just a moment. We've okay. got professors getting ready to teach and uh, and students getting ready to go to seminars. <clears throat> Let me ask uh, about uh, faith, work, and economics issues sure. and, yeah. that you spoke on in chapel today. And let me ask in particular your view about justice mm -hmm. in relation to wealth. <clears throat> Is justice more of the legal and moral acquisition of wealth? <clears throat> Does it involve any redistribution of wealth? If so, yeah. how much? It's a very interesting question. Um, you know, I wrote, uh, I wrote a book called Political Thought, A Student's Guide. That's the one that you refuse to ever mention, Bruce. Uh, but, <laughs> I, I, I'll but, take a note. <laughs> <laughs> but, but anyway, anyway, that that book, um, I make an argument about justice uh, that relies heavily on the idea that justice is the the restraint and punishment of evil men, right? That it, mm -hmm. that it is the prevention of evil acts. Um, but I have to say that uh, after a few years of of having to teach Plato since my colleague left for Calvin College. Um, I have had to consider Plato's point of view, uh, which is that that justice uh, also can have to do with kind of kind of the the order of society, the harmony of society, um, and that it may be more holistic than kind of my view of it is kind of largely a, a negative check on injustice, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and so that gets to some of the things I was talking about today, mm -hmm. right? Uh, I. Uh, and, and my view would be that the, the redist redistributive approaches are ultimately not what is going to be good for human beings, right? You know, that, yeah. that, that what we need, uh, Ben Sass talks about this pretty effectively, that, that we are facing a generational challenge with regard to the nature of work. And, and technology is making it easier and easier to do more and more with fewer and fewer people. Mm -hmm. And so we're putting more and more people on the sidelines. But, it, but if we accept the idea that, that, that working, you know, is not something to be avoided, but something that's actually necessary to the human experience, uh, 
then we have got to find a way to, to help people to, to make a contribution. So, you know, I, I'm trying to work through this issue myself. I used yeah. to take a pretty hardline position that uh, economic justice was nothing but legal and moral acquisition of wealth. Yeah. I think the way I put it now, I want to hear, hear what you, th you think. You've thought about this more than the rest of us have. I would say that redistribution of wealth is sometimes just, and it should be provisional and minimal mm -hmm. for the purpose of uh, even while you're redistributing wealth, we should be trying to breathe new life into mediating institutions and yeah. nonprofits, charities, churches, and so forth, yep. uh, because those are the long-term solution. Uh, is, is that a, a well? Decent yeah, approach? I mean, I, I think that um, one of the one of the problems is is that you can do tremendous damage with redistribution. Um, mm -hmm. I, you know, I, I once had breakfast with Lloyd Benson, the third. Uh, Lloyd Benson II was the, uh, the vice presidential candidate with Dukakis and Secretary of the Treasury at one point. And so I, I was having lunch with his son, who at the time I was having lunch with him was an old man himself. And uh, we started talking about these issues, and he was a lifelong Democrat, still a Democrat. He was still actively looking forward to Obamacare, for instance. And, um, and he said, he said uh, I think that with the great society that we hurt people. I think that we I think that we harmed people, um, and and part of that has to do with the way that it seemed it seemed as though you you fundamentally took dynamite and just blew up families at the lower end of the socioeconomic scale. Uh, I mean, family has almost disappeared uh, at the lower yep. end of the socioeconomic scale, and and that is that is absolutely not good for human flourishing. Uh, so yeah, you you I think there are ways to do it, but uh, you've got to avoid having those kind of perverse effects. Mm -hmm. Um, it is better if we can find a way to, uh, to, to help equip people to participate. But, you know, I'm leery. I'm leery of, of even, I mean, so if we said, okay, we're going to pay for everybody's college, my guess is, is that it's not necessarily going to be good just to say, okay, everybody go out there and go to the universities and get the combo meal. Um, you know, uh, I, right, yeah. I, we, we probably, I, it's, it's against my self-interest to say so, but we probably need significant innovation in terms of what is offered. And, and, uh, and I actually think that, that you know, we all, we've been through a period of kind of rushing to everybody to become a university and to offer everything. Uh, we probably actually need to disaggregate okay. and go back into having the smaller pieces. Mm -hmm. I mean, for instance, one of my dad's friends, a million years ago, had his degree from the New Jersey Institute of Textiles. Right, well, that doesn't right. exist anymore, no. right? You yeah. know, somewhere yeah. along the way, they, they put it all together and to get the federal aid and everything else. So we need to probably disaggregate and have lots and lots of potential options to vocational training and things yeah. like that. So unfortunately, our time <coughs> is quickly coming to an right. end. However, so that Hunter Baker can continue to live with us, Will you uh, provide a few book recommendations for thoughtful Christians? Not PhD-type books, but just... Uh, <coughs> Interested in informed Christians, yeah. politics and public life, very yeah. general category. Give us four or five. I mentioned The Abolition of Man, okay. which I think is absolutely fantastic uh, and short. Um, I really like the book Witness by Whitaker Chambers, um, and that's a little bit longer, okay. but, uh, but that's kind of his memoir of being a, uh, a Soviet spy in the United States who changed sides. Uh, but it's, very, it's a very deeply spiritual book, and I think it lets you think about a lot of the a lot of the major issues. Um, you, I like, I mentioned Peter Kreeft. I like, mm -hmm. I like his The Unaborted Socrates. Mm, that's good. And uh, The Best Things in Life. Yep. Both of those are very good. That's what I can think of off the top of my head. 
Kreftos is just a really sharp thinker, and he's got a great yeah. wit. Oh, yeah. And uh, books yeah. are so Well, he brisk. writes these kind of dialogues, yeah. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time with us. Yeah, thank uh, you. Really good to have you here at Southeastern. And uh, we're going to close in, in prayer and ask for the Lord to uh, <coughs> bless Dr. Baker, and then we will be adjourned. Father, we uh, come to you and thank you again for your goodness to us in sending Dr. Dr. Baker our way. Father, we pray that you will uh, enable us to, as citizens of the United States, to help bring our nation into a missionary encounter with the gospel. And we pray that you will enable us to use the venue of politics and public life to facilitate that missionary encounter. Um, pray that you help us to uh, think uh, in, in straight manners rather than crooked uh, in terms of our content, that we will... The way we think and what we say will be correct and true and good. And we pray that you help us to keep our demeanor and our bearing uh, to be distinctively Christian. That we'll be able to uh, speak truths, but speak those truths in a way that is befitting a Christian. Father, we pray these things in the name of your Son and for the glory of your Son, knowing that we can only do them by the enabling power of your Spirit. So, Father, we pray in the name of your Son, by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Amen.